Welcome to Rapham Focus, a podcast devoted to exploring the provocative and impactful aspects of the research published in regional anesthesia and pain medicine. Here, we'll make sure to discuss and debate the findings that matter most for clinicians, patients, and policymakers. I'm Brian Seitz, Editor-in-Chief. I am an anesthesiologist and professor at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. At Rapham, we believe well-done pain medicine improves health and well-being. I'll work to keep the discussion relevant and factual. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. So back pain gets attention in the public health world. Disability, healthcare utilization, and lost work productivity are big ticket items that are all negatively affected by back pain. You can insert your shock statistic of choice, but we know that a new diagnosis of low back pain will cost billions of dollars to the healthcare system each year. Given that approximately 80% of the U.S. population will experience low back pain in their lives, this is a huge story. Furthermore, since the U.S. healthcare spending is approximately 18% of the GDP, spending money on therapies that work or don't work is a huge health policy issue. Because interventional procedures for low back pain have grown tremendously in the recent years, it makes sense to get a granular look at predictors of treatment success. Today, we're joined by Dr. Steve Cohen. Dr. Cohen is a professor of anesthesiology and critical care at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and Uniform Services. He is also the chief of pain medicine at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Cohen has published over 400 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. He has served as chair for multiple international guideline committees and in 2021 was listed as the leading pain expert in the world by Expertscape. That's pretty cool, Steve. Congratulations. In addition to his academic work, Dr. Cohen is a retired colonel in the U.S. Army. He is here today to tell us about some of his recent work on characteristics associated with treatment efficacy for low back pain. Steve, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for your service in the military. Brian, it's really my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Last year, Dr. Cohen was the senior author in a multi-center study evaluating factors associated with treatment outcomes for low back pain that was published in RAPM. The study used observational prospective data from seven hospitals and examined predictors of pain reduction following interventions for lumbosacral radicular pain or or mechanical low back pain of presumed facet or sacroiliac joint ideology. So, Steve, let's start this off. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the background controversy around whether or not procedural interventions should be offered for chronic low back pain? In other words, some would say that we may be over-diagnosing and over-treating. Well, Brian, it's a well-known fact that we do, in fact, over-treat back pain. And there are some national payers in Europe, some authors of high-impact articles, including the Lancet Low Back Pain, of which I was a part of, which actually recommended against some of the treatments that we studied, including lumbar radiofrequency ablation. And I dissented on that. But regardless of where one stands, and that depends a lot on whether or not a doctor performs the procedures, the utility of the procedures to treat back pain is the subject of immense debate and controversy, as you alluded to, with clinical trials yielding very mixed results and studies yielding widely discrepant success rates. There were large differences in selection criteria and performance in these studies, which to me suggests that patient selection is probably one of the foremost factors affecting results. Not everyone who has facet arthritis on MRI should get facet blocks, and not everyone who has sciatica should receive an epidural steroid injection. When this happens, 
the risk-benefit ratio becomes skewed towards risks. So personalized medicine is an emerging area of interest in which an individual's unique characteristics, so their phenotype, maybe at some point even their genotype, is used to guide decision-making. So this operates in the context of a biopsychosocial framework rather than a biomedical one in which medical treatments, including procedures that we studied here, are applied in a symptom-based context. So to illustrate, if we could consider all of the information about an individual, how long they've had pain, how they've responded in the past to different treatments, their psychological profile, how well they sleep, what their pain threshold and tolerance are, their pathology, their exam signs, then instead of estimating an individual's likelihood to get better by what is essentially a coin flip or trying to generalize the results from clinical trials that aren't performed in real world context, we can provide them with a more accurate estimation based on their distinct clinical and, and demographic profile. In other words, me telling Ms. Jones, well, you may or you may not get better, I might tell her, you have about a two-thirds chance to get better, plus or minus 5%. This would not only benefit patients individually, but also society at large by limiting costs and unnecessary procedures. But just kind of as a follow-up to Ms. the Miss Jones scenario there, if if Miss Jones showed up with a low back pain, and we, we're going to go over the different types of low back pain in a second, but if she showed up with low back pain in in each of the fifty states, same Miss Jones, and fifty different pain doctors saw her, what would be your sense of the the correlation or the agreement among those fifty? You know, I'm, I'm kind of a product of uh, the Dartmouth uh, Atlas here being at uh, Dartmouth Medical School for so many years. And is, there's this concept of, of, uh, of variation in, 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 in treatment, depending on, on where you are. And I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on, on if you, you would see that kind of geographic variation at all with respect to this topic. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. We, we know that there are many factors that affect who receives a treatment. So these include things like insurance and socioeconomic status, education, geography, referral patterns. We know that incentivized systems that more procedures tend to tend to be performed. You know, we have later this month an article coming out in Jetwork in uh, JAMA Network Open that found that white people were more likely to receive spine surgery and spinal cord stimulation than non-white people across the board. And we know that the top proceduralists account for a very disproportionate percentage of procedures. We also know that there's a direct correlation between the number of MRIs done, the number of epidural steroid injections performed, and the number of spine surgeries in individual geographic locations, which reflect regional utilization. For spine surgery, at least, the correlation between the number of spine surgeries and the number of spine surgeons is almost perfect. Wow. So, so I, I, I got to be careful there because we could get off on a tangent. This is so, so fascinating. So I'm going to try to stay, stay on focus, but maybe we'll come back to that. But that's, that's, that's absolutely a fascinating um, uh, discussion. Now, you analyzed three major interventions, one of which is, is epidural steroid injection. And I would think that most of our listeners will be familiar with uh, lumbar epidural steroid injections, but they may be less familiar with the other two uh, injections uh, and interventions uh, with respect to the SI joint, facet interventions, medial branch blocks. Can you give us a super simple overview of the latter two? Sure. The elevator pitch, kind the of. Yeah, um, the elevator pitch. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the sacred leg joint is the largest spinal joint in the body. It might be the primary pain generator in around 30% of people who have axial pain 
um, below the iliac crest. Um, SI joint injections can be therapeutic, but they can also be diagnostic and, and even prognostic. In other words, selecting patients for sacroiliac radiofrequency ablation or even surgery. And to get even a little bit more specific, you know, SI joint pain can, can be intraarticular, so arising from bone or the capsule, or extraarticular, arising from uh, the ligaments. And the two are approximately equally prevalent. The facet joints connect the vertebra, they limit certain movements, and they assist with uh, axial loads, especially later in life when the facet joints hypertrophy and discs degenerate. So each joint is innervated by two medial branches, one at the level of the joint, one above, and medial branch blocks are recommended by nearly all organizations, including our facet guidelines published in RAPM as being both prognostic and diagnostic. In people who responded, um, to medial branch blocks, and we considered a positive response is greater than 50% pain relief. Radiofrequency ablation can often provide comparable pain relief, but that lasts much longer, often between six months and 12, and 12 months. Okay, great. No, that's, that's a helpful overview, uh, Steve, for some of our, maybe our acute pain physicians who are, who are listening. So before we get into the predictors of success or failure, can you summarize the findings regarding the overall efficacy of the procedures? Because I think that's an important starting point to say, hey, look, you know, independent of the, the predictors or, or who does better, just like what is the overall uh, efficacy of some of these treatments if I was a patient showing up at a, at a pain clinic? Sure. Well, what's, what's meaningful to patients who often overestimate how much pain relief they need to feel better is often what their chance of success is. Doc, is this going to help me? What are my chances? So um, defining a successful outcome is a two-point or greater decrease in pain um, plus positive satisfaction at the primary endpoint, which was one month for epidural steroid and sacroiliac joint injections and three months after facet interventions. We found that 50% of people who received SI joint injections, 50% who underwent radiofrequency ablation after a a positive medial branch block, and 44% who received an epidural steroid injection for sciatica had had a positive outcome. That is really encouraging. Don't you think so, Steve? Yes, I, I do. Um, because th- this was done in a real world context rather than, um, you know, amidst the, the very stringent criteria um, that are necessary to, to be enrolled in a, in a clinical trial. So often in a real world context, success rates tend to be lower than they are in clinical trials. That, that's, that's a good point, uh, Steve. And just for our listeners, often we talk about some of the limitations of randomized controlled trials in that they are very, very rigid. The patient populations and the protocols may not mimic the real world. So there's often a discrepancy in the findings of, of randomized controlled trials and then what happens in, in, in regular clinical practice. So there's been a push over the last uh, five to 10 years to try to do more pragmatic studies that, uh, that mimic the conditions uh, that patients are actually being treated in. So that's a really good good point, Steve. So Steve, the, the primary outcome measure was the change in average low back pain or leg pain for ESI score over the past week. And the primary endpoint was asked at, at different time periods depending on the procedure. And my question is uh, how you chose those outcome measures. What, what, what drove you to consider those as important? It varies slightly, but most studies 
federal regulatory organizations such as the FDA and the European Medicines Agency and guidelines consider 30% or about a two-point improvement to be clinically meaningful for an individual patient. As for the timing of the primary endpoint, a lot of that was chosen for us. So the the lumbar facet guidelines, which were published in, in RAPM, determined that three months is a meaningful duration of benefit. And studies sponsored by the NIH and that are being used to seek approval of steroids for epidural administration have determined that between four weeks and six weeks is a meaningful time period for epidural steroid injections. Okay, thanks, Steve. That's actually really helpful. And this is kind of a spoiler alert because a little bat lecture coming up in in the spring uh, by Dr. Brian Ilfeld will address this discussion of about the distinction between uh, clinically relevant differences between individuals that may not be the same as the differences between the means of groups that are in studies. And I don't know if Steve, if you want to make any comments about that. I think I, I think I talked to you about that at the, at the fall meeting and you were pretty, pretty whipped up about it, that, that topic. But um, I don't know if you want to make any, any comments about that. Sure. Brian, I've, we actually had this discussion for one of uh, Brian Ilfeld's steering committees uh, last month. And, you know, this was the topic of discussion. And the impact guidelines specifically note that while 30% or maybe a two-point difference is clinically meaningful for an individual patient, when you look at differences between groups in clinical trials, what's meaningful is often much less. So if you look at studies that have led to FDA approval of medications, you may see differences between groups as low as 10% and sometimes 20% or or greater. Great. Thanks a lot, Steve. Now, um, let's move on to uh, the predictors. So what what did you find uh, in terms of sociodemographic and health variables that were predictive of either success or failure? Let's just start with the, the univariate relationships kind of the unadjusted crude relationships. What are the what are the key takeaways? Let me divide this first into into those findings that surprised us and those that didn't. All right. So, on the not surprising side, um, higher baseline disease burden, in other words, higher pain scores, greater functional impairment, bilateral pain, longer duration of pain, sleep abnormalities, these were associated with failure. Other findings that are consistent with the literature, we found that obesity, having an ongoing psychiatric condition, smoking, the presence of non-organic signs, and secondary gain were also associated with treatment failure. As you noted, how we define success also influenced our results. When we looked at categorical outcome, which again we defined as a two-point or greater decrease in pain and a greater than three out of five score on the satisfaction scale, lower pain scores were associated with a positive outcome. But when we looked at just the reduction, the magnitude of the reduction in pain and stratified it by baseline parameters, having higher pain scores were associated with greater pain score reduction. And that's because when you have higher pain scores, there's more room for improvement. Now for the surprising uh, findings. Well, we thought that opioid use, which has been found to be associated with poor outcomes separately for lumbar facet radiofrequency ablation, epidural steroid injections, and SI joint injections, including in some of my own clinical trials, would be associated with a negative outcome. But it wasn't. Nosoplastic pain conditions, you know, these conditions are characterized by central sensitization. Um, 
Many people consider nonspecific low back pain to be a nosoplastic pain condition, and fibromyalgia is the prototype. We thought that fibromyalgia would be associated with treatment failure, but it wasn't. However, there are many patients with diffuse pain phenotypes who aren't diagnosed with, with fibromyalgia, yet only one out of eight people with chronic abdominal or pelvic pain got better. And people with chronic abdominal pain and pelvic pain, these patients often have nosoplastic pain conditions, such as irritable bowel syndrome and interstitial cystitis. The other thing is that in the Interventional Pain Committee, there is contentious ongoing debate as to the ideal cutoff threshold for selecting patients who undergo medial branch blocks for radiofrequency ablation. And I've been perhaps the biggest proponent of using lower thresholds. In other words, 50% pain relief rather than uh, 80% or higher to constitute a positive block and select patients for radiofrequency ablation. And again, this is consistent with the impact guidelines that say that 30% is clinically you know, meaningful. In this study, however, although the numbers were small, we found that people who had greater than 80% pain relief on diagnostic medial branch blocks were more likely to have a positive outcome than those who had between 50 and 79% pain relief. Although if we did use an 80% cutoff, 15 out of 38 patients would have been denied a treatment that helped them. For sacroiliac joint injections, the people who got between 50 and 79% immediate pain relief, in other words, the diagnostic part of the block, were actually more likely to experience a positive outcome at one month than those who had greater than 80% pain relief. Well, that's that's just that's just an amazing amount of information that was extracted from from the study, and it really, I think, is going to help drive uh, f- future research. And, and I also find it so interesting, your comment about definitions uh, in, it will actually change the the results right and 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 that I think that's where often in medicine and research uh, there's a crossroads with uh, with politics because uh, you can define away uh, results or or define in results based on on how you want to do it so it's a very kind of sticky uh, political area especially in pain medicine but that's a that's a great summary of the the results now uh, what about what about your your model. Um, what do you what, what would you interpret as your major uh, results from your statistical model when you kind of put all your covariates in? Sure. Um, well, for our primary outcome measure, reduction in average pain intensity at the primary endpoint, we found that obesity and depression were associated with negative outcomes in multivariate linear regression, and that higher pain score was associated with a greater reduction in pain. And I explained why, because there's more room for improvement. Uh, In the full multivariate model, older age had a p-value of 0.055 for association with a positive outcome. Um, For categorical outcome, so i.e. success or failure, higher pain score was associated with negative outcome in univariate analysis, but we didn't include that in the multivariate model because of collinearity with uh, functional impairment, which along with depression was strongly associated with negative outcome. And, and, and Steve, um, you know, I think w- when I l- stand back and look at the, the, the results as a, as a non-pain physician, I'm struck by uh, the results in, in, in table six. Uh, there's, there's huge signals from smoking and obesity that you've already alluded to, uh, approximately 40% less likely to have success when you have these threshold conditions present. And I'm just curious if you 
you know, like like if you have an idea biologically why that is, uh, number one, and number two, uh, just a comment on the magnitude of that signal because that kind of gets people's attention. That's a, that's there's no doubt that's a that's important. Yes, great point. I mean, smoking and obesity were associated with very low odds ratios, 0.41 and 0.58 respectively. But we didn't include them in the multivariate logistic regression model because functional impairment was a better predictor. In other words, people who smoke and are overweight are are also more impaired. But based on univariate analysis, we can safely say that if you smoke or you're obese, you're a lot less likely to get better um, from the back pain procedures we studied. Fantastic. So, Steve, confounding must be an issue when looking uh, at relationships between clinical health variables and outcomes in pain, such as you've done here. Can you highlight any potential covariates that were were not included that you would have liked to have included had you uh, had the ability to to measure and collect that data? Another really excellent question. And I'm going to kind of go into something else over here. So, the um, the placebo effect for pain is absolutely definitively it's stronger than the intrinsic effect for for almost all treatments, including the three that we studied. So we thought that expectations, which is closely tied to the placebo effect, would affect outcomes because other studies have shown that. We did not find that expectations affected outcomes. However, another variable that's also very closely tied to the placebo effect, we weren't able to measure. And that's the um, that's basically how close the physician, the doctor-patient relation is. That would be something that I would have liked to measure that we were not able to, that we didn't think of measuring. That's a that's a really good point. Thanks for sharing that with the, the readers. And and I and I would just note that I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, the 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 the, the efficacy of placebo effect is the the reason why ethically sham injections are considered um, okay in 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 contemporary research. Is that is that fair to say? That's fair to say, and I think it also depends on perspective. So in there are many countries where you really can't do, um, you know, placebo treatments, and you have to basically weigh the the risks and the benefits. But like I said, it's absolutely provable that the placebo effect is stronger than the intrinsic effect. And all you have to do is look at well-designed clinical trials, and you could see that the within-group treatment in the control or the placebo group, that difference is often is usually greater than the between-group um, difference. Another thing in, in pain medicine is trying to figure out exactly what constitutes a placebo. So certainly injecting local anesthetic and saline into the epidural space without steroid is not a placebo. Gotcha. Okay. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Steve. That really is really uh, important uh, point. So I noticed you uh, reported 10 complications. That, that seemed a bit, a bit high to me. Uh, w- w- was that your assessment as well? I think we reported 10 complications for epidural steroid injections, so it's probably uh, a a little higher. I think we may have reported something like 20 complications, but the the complications were were minor. 10 or or for epidural steroids is fairly high, but the thing about complications and side effects is that if you don't ask the question, most people 
won't report it. We ask the question. And the other thing is, like I said, even if you look at side effects or complications from placebo-controlled medication trials for analgesics, you can see that the group that gets the placebo has lots of side effects as well. So that's the nocebo effect. Very strong, just like the placebo effect. That's that's wild. Uh, and now, in, in terms of uh, kind of closing comments here, uh, so if if you're in uh, an ele- let's go back to the elevator because I love the elevator. So we're in the elevator, uh, and I'm a skeptic uh, of 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 low back pain procedures uh, versus conservative management, uh, just in general. And you're 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 like, no, I'm all in because of this study, and here's who I would do it on. So. What would be like the ideal patient in, uh, to tell me about uh, in the elevator? Like you just feel really good that this is the right one for let's let's take let's take a, a lumbar epidural steroid injection as an example. Great. Um, so younger person, somebody with acute pain from a herniated disc, somebody without psychosocial variables uh, who does not have secondary gain and who doesn't have really extensive disease burden. The, the problem is if you, if you look at people like this, right, somebody with acute pain, with a herniated disc instead of spinal stenosis, a lot of these people are going to get better just based on natural course of the disease them, themselves. So that's, that's really the, 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 the dilemma is, is how long do you wait? And, 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 and how long does the system wait? And how long does the patient want to wait? So, Brian, we actually uh, kind of developed um, an instrument to rate epidural steroid injection uh, studies. And your predecessor, Mark Huntoon, I think, was on it. It was called uh, Aquarius. And it was interesting because um, although people with acute pain, so people with less than three months worth of pain, are more likely to get better, a lot of them, the fact that a lot of them will get better on their own means that these people are not great candidates for, for clinical trials. What you don't want in a clinical trial is a very, very high response rate in the, in the control group or the placebo group. Um, by the same token, we really don't want people who've had you know 25 years worth of unrelenting 10 over 10 pain because these people are not going to get better no matter what. Great point, Steve. Do you have any other comments or or thoughts that you want our listeners to know about your study? Yeah, I I think that you know if you look at um things like you know figures three and four, where you could see that levels of depression and functional impairment are almost linearly correlated with poor outcomes, which suggests that you know even some improvement in function and depression um, can improve results. Um, so unlike age or duration of pain, these variables are, are modifiable. So some surgeons now refuse to operate on patients with back pain who are morbidly obese or who smoke because they know that they're less likely to get better. So it's true that pain procedures are less cost, costly and risky than surgery, which does change the risk-benefit ratio. But given the scrutiny of these procedures, the rising costs, and the push that we all have towards personalized medicine, you know, maybe we as pain doctors need to start doing the same thing. Great point, Steve. And uh, just a, as a, as a follow up on, on, on that comment, it, it, it's important to note, uh, however, though, things that are associated with the outcome 
does not mean that they're causal in nature. So just because they're modifiable doesn't mean that they're actually in the causal pathway. And if you modify them, that there'll be a difference in the outcome. Now, something like obesity, which may be very biologically related, uh, you, you probably have a, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to understand how that might actually impact on, on the outcome. But certain sociodemographic things are, even though they're maybe mod- modifiable, may not actually be causative of the outcome. Is that is that fair to say? That's a perfect way to, to put it. So studies like this can really show associations, but they're not able to show cause and effect relationship. All right. Well, this has been a real pleasure, Steve. Thanks so much for joining us. And thanks to all of you who listened in. 